Welcome to Let's Talk Longevity, a new podcast challenging the current narratives in the field. My name is Zara Minkini, and I'm a longevity advocate and entrepreneur. I am very honored to have our first guest, two very special names in the industry. One has been promoting it for a very long time, and another one is the very huge skeptic, Dr. Aubrey the Gray and Dr. Charles Brenner. They're here to debate longevity escape philosophy. Are we anywhere near it? You'll hear about it. So welcome to the first episode of Let's Talk Longevity. My name is Sarah Minkini. I'm a longevity advocate and a longevity entrepreneur, and uh, I'm currently building Mikey Guy, a discovery and recommendation platform for what else? Longevity. To launch this podcast, we have two very special guests. One of them has been promoting longevity for a long time, and the other one is a skeptic. Uh, to help me introduce them, I'm going to pass this to my co-hosts, Janae and Mia. All right. Uh, thanks, uh, Laura. Hello, everyone. My name is Janaid Meehan, and I'm a pharmacist, an entrepreneur, and an investor. Uh, for more information on what I'm up to, just reach out to me on LinkedIn, and we can take it offline. Um, all right. So I'm going to start with the intros, and we'll let our guests introduce themselves. First, we have Dr. Charles Brenner. Go ahead, Dr. Brenner. Introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm a department head at uh, City of Hope National Medical Center outside of Los Angeles. It's uh, the Department of Diabetes and Cancer Metabolism. Prior to that, I was head of biochemistry for 11 years at the University of Iowa. Prior to that, I was on the faculty at Dartmouth. Before that, Thomas Jefferson University, Stanford, Brandeis. Um, I'm a biochemist. Uh, my primary interest is, interest is NAD metabolism. Um, my connection to longevity is kind of boosting repair and resilience pathways uh, in animals, including people. Excellent. That's a great intro. And uh, let's pass it on to Aubrey. Aubrey, introduce yourself. Good. Yeah, I'm Dr. Aubrey de Grey. I uh, started out not as a biologist, but as a computer scientist. My undergrad degree from Cambridge was in computer science. But when I was around 30, I switched fields, got my PhD in biology. And I have been working for the past 25 years or more on the biology of aging. I'm not in favor of aging. I'd like to fix it. And I um, have been putting out ideas for how to go about that for a little while now. Um, I've also become reasonably high profile uh, in the wider world because I have definitely um, taken the view that uh, I should do everything I can to hasten the defeat of aging, both scientifically and in terms of leveraging my charisma or whatever, uh, you know, giving public talks and so on. So um, I am always delighted to take part in debates like this. Well, glad that you are. Thank you for that, Aubrey. So we are going to go straight to um, asking you to please define for us longevity escape velocity. Um, I'm going to let you go there. And after that, we're going to ask the question of this um, podcast, because on each one of our episodes, we're actually going to go over a subject in longevity. And um, I would say have a friendly and spirited conversation, a pro or for, for or against the position that we're discussing. So, Aubrey, I'll let you take the stage. Sure. Right. So defining longevity escape velocity. Well, 
Um, in order to define it, I have to first define a couple of other things. First of all, I have to define aging itself, which is something that different people have different preferred definitions of. Um, but those definitions, at least among the scientific community, don't actually really contradict each other. They're kind of more stylistically different. But the definition I like to use focuses on the concept of damage. In other words, basically, I define aging as the lifelong accumulation of various changes to the molecular and cellular uh, structure and composition of the body that are self-inflicted in the sense that they are side effects of our normal metabolic processes that keep us alive. And they accumulate over time to a point that eventually exceeds what the body is set up to tolerate. And that's why it is appropriate to call those changes damage because they, when they get to that threshold, they initiate and um, cause the progression of the various chronic progressive health conditions of late life. So that's what aging is by my definition. And I don't think it's a controversial definition. It's just like it's focused on this thing called damage. And I can pretty much accept that, by the way, Aubrey. Great. Um, then um, about longevity. So people are terribly focused these days, as there is a good case to be, on healthy longevity, on how long people can stay healthy, because they say, well, you know, what's the point of staying alive if you're sick? And so I think it's rather important to, for the general audience to understand that this is not really a significant debate within the gerontology community. We all understand perfectly well that total longevity, lifespan, is essentially a side effect of health span. The longer you stay healthy, the longer you're likely to stay alive. Of course, if one gets too specific and one talks about specific diseases, then that gets more complicated because... The, especially the people who get to the real um, tail end of the survival curve tend more often than not to die of rather less specific or at least less easily definable causes than people who die in their 70s and 80s. But if we just talk about health as defined by things like activities of daily living, what you can do, whether you can bathe yourself, whether you can do your own shopping, then it's a pretty good approximation just to say that lifespan is a side effect of health span. So that's why I use the word longevity rather than getting into either of those things in the phrase longevity escape velocity. All right, so now to get on to what longevity escape velocity itself is. And the critical thing here to begin with is to understand that it's all based around damage repair, therapies that eliminate damage, as I've defined it just a moment ago, um, that's already been laid down by the body. And that's as distinct from therapies that slow down the creation of subsequent damage. Um, you know, like, for example, calorie restriction or drugs that mimic calorie restriction. Those are mainly focused on slowing aging down, slowing down the accumulation, the creation of damage, rather than on getting rid of damage that exists already. And the reason I wanted to focus on that was because it's very important to understand that the concept of longevity escape velocity is completely impossible if we only have therapies that slow down the creation of new damage. It has to be in the context of therapies that repair existing damage. All right, so what is it? It is the minimum rate at which we would need to continue over time to improve the comprehensiveness of damage repair therapies so as to keep the overall level of damage in the body of someone who's always getting the state-of-the-art therapies from continuing to rise. In other words, keep their biological age defined, by, defined as the amount of damage in their body um, constant or, or diminishing rather than continuing to increase. 
Now that concept doesn't really make any sense until we get to a certain amount of comprehensiveness, which we're certainly not at yet, to, in other words, a point where we are just about doing this. I believe very strongly that once we get to that point, however long that may take, and that's the thing we're really talking about today, however long it may take, after we've got there, we, we have no chance whatsoever of ever falling back below longevity escape velocity and failing to continue to improve therapies rapidly enough. Um, and for that reason, a friend of mine some years ago coined a, a specific term, the Methuselarity, which, by which he meant the date at which we uh, achieve longevity escape velocity. So we've got two things here. Longevity escape velocity is not a date, it's a rate. So what we're really talking about today is the date at which the Methuselarity happens. And um, that really is, is, all, is all it's about. I think that... Um, once we reach longevity escape velocity, uh, we're going to stay there because the actual rate at which you have to carry on improving the therapies actually goes down over time because the less you have left that you can't yet repair, the longer it takes for the things you can't get rep yet repair to get to a level that's bad for us. Um, that's why it slows down. Uh, but we're not talking about that today. We're talking about how long we take to get to longevity escape velocity at all. I think that's my definition. All righty, right. can I can I jump in here? Okay, yeah, so, you're chomping at the bit so, there, Charles. Go for so, it. so I think that basically um, Aubrey's presenting science fiction, and um, the premise that he's presenting is that um, there are seven kinds of damage that that cause aging. Um, he enumerated them in the year two thousand, and the premise is that if you can repair one or more of these types of aging at a time, you're buying yourself um, some lifespan extension. And that allows you, that is what you said, I've, I've, I've listened to your, your lectures. And, um, and that, uh, that repairing some of the ongoing damage, and it doesn't even have to be 100% uh, repair, will extend lifespan and that gives you the, the time to do more technology to address more types of damage. There's That's so right. many problems. There's so many problems with, with these premises. First of all, um, Aubrey, you, you developed uh, uh, you, the account of your coming up uh, with, with, these, with this, this idea was in 2000. You're at a conference and among the people at the conference was Michael Rose. So I know that you're aware of the work of Michael Rose. By the year 1991, we all understood that animals have gene sets that define their uh, maximal lifespans. And in fact, the work of Michael Rose, and you're a fly person by, by training, um, showed that the gene sets are there to support reproduction. So um, you've got to have the musculature, the brain, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the immune system to successfully uh, function as a male or a female fly in order to produce more flies. Same thing for naked mole rats, which live a long time, or mice that live a short time, or human beings that live 80 to maybe 120, 20 years. There's a gene set that supports all of our systems. And generally speaking, in animals, 
we don't outlive our reproductive capacity. And that's in fact true for human males who have a declining sort of sex appeal and declining sperm production all the way through their lives. Human females are different actually, have a very unique property of outliving their reproductive capacity. And that's because we understand that grandmothers are so important, but there's no evidence. You can't uh, uh, bring any evidence that if you were to um, address one type of damage that you would extend lifespan. You haven't done that in any animal. And I'll give you an opportunity to, I've got plenty more critiques, but I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that. Sure, thank you. Uh, so where I said you got my position wrong, just in one detail, um, early on in what you just said, you said that I said that we could achieve longevity escape velocity by repairing one or two or so of the uh, seven things, and then we'd buy enough time to repair the next one. So I've never said that. What I've said is that we do absolutely have to repair all of them fairly well in order to get to longevity escape velocity. What is your evidence that, that, that repairing some number of them would extend lifespan when lifespan maxima are genetically determined. So I'll come to that in a moment. But I just want to emphasize that we do have to repair all of them somewhat. We can't get away with leaving any of them completely. You're making it really hard for yourself now because oh, yeah. I was gonna I was giving you, you know, the benefit of you're only uh, needing to repair, for example, intracellular junk. So for listeners that you know you may or may not want to list all seven, but intracellular junk is one of the types of damage, and you've proposed that you're going to develop enzymes that are going to detoxify the intracellular junk. Vadim Gladyshev explained to you that um, you, you can't even catalog all the types of intracellular junk. You're not dealing with um, unknowns, right? You're only dealing with the things that you know about, and you have literally no strategy to introduce these enzymes into all of the cells of a human body, you can't even do it in all of the cells of a worm or a fly. So, and and you you have no technology that would allow you to introduce these genetic constructs into all cells. What 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 are your approaches going to be that uh, to express them, especially in non-dividing cells? What are your approaches going to be to not? tick off the innate immune system or the acquired immune system just in dealing with this one type of damage? So first of all, thank you for noticing that I'm making it hard for myself. I, um, I know that a lot of the debates that you have uh, these days are with people whom you accuse of oversimplifying or hyping things, and with some reason. Um, that's something that I am very seldom accused of, so thank you for noticing. Um, the, I, you I said that it's going to get easier oh, yeah. as Only you start a, uh, you, no, which is wait, Charles, hype. Charles, let's let Aubrey finish. Let's uh, let Aubrey finish his point. After we reach longevity escape velocity, <laughs> getting to longevity escape velocity is what we're talking about today. Since um, we're not going to approach longevity escape velocity, then it sort of doesn't matter. But anyway, yeah. tell um, me. All right, so, so, so let's not jump around too much. First of all, I want to come back to something that you said in your previous answer, which was about the existence of some natural, genetically defined maximum lifespan. Yes. It's an important point that a lot of people get wrong, and I think you're getting it wrong. The genetically defined lifespan is certainly a thing. 
But it's a thing in the absence of medicine, especially it's in the absence of damage repair medicine, rejuvenation medicine. That's a... There, there isn't damage repair medicine, right. Aubrey. That's right, there isn't. Uh, but that doesn't say that there never will be. The debate today is about the future. So the whole point here is that, yes, of course, there are genes that we have that define our metabolic processes. And the way I like to describe aging is it consists of... It, 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 the accumulation of damage happens because of the gaps in our inbuilt, genetically decoded anti-aging machinery. Essentially, one could say that the reason we live longer than mice is because they have bigger gaps in their anti-aging machinery. So I wouldn't say that. I would say we live longer than mice because our uh, habitat is such that we reproduce from the ages of 15 to 50. And so we have to have organ systems that function well into the fifth decade and that have or there are examples of our or all of our organ systems functioning into the twelfth decade, but there's no ex- examples of our organ systems uh, functioning into the thirteenth decade that's because right. we've that's lost our reproductive capacity so many decades earlier. That's not the reason. That is a mistake. The idea, no, it's that, not we, mistake. the idea that we would have our lifespan would be defined by our reproductive lifespan makes the incorrect assumption that our reproductive lifespan is something that can't, can't be modulated by evolution, which is obviously nonsense. We can uh, talk about the work of Michael Rose. I'm yeah, yeah, very I, prepared I, I to. Very well. Of course, if you, if you postpone reprodu- reproduction effectively by essentially discarding the fruit flies that were born to young mothers, which is the way that he's got, got, got yes. it. Yes. Then absolutely you're going to select for um, for, for flies that live longer in order yes. to live longer, absolutely. But the two things evolve in tandem, and they both evolve because of the environment. In, of course, Michael's case, the environment was this artificial business of not allowing the fly to have any offspring when they were young. Right. But in the wild, it's extrinsic mortality, it's predation and hypothermia and stuff. Correct. So reproductive lifespan and every other parts of it, every other part, reproductive aging and every other part of aging both evolve in response to extrinsic mortality. It's not that the rest of aging happens because of reproductive aging. However, I was not talking, when I said why we age, I wasn't talking about the evolutionary reason why we age. I was talking about the metabolic reason. Namely, we age because of anti-aging machinery that we don't have. In other words, if you've got a wider range of enzymes that break down stuff in the life. We could say shit happens, right? Well, we yeah, could say that, no, 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 for example, reactive oxygen species occur, yeah. right, due to imprecise electron transfer, et cetera. Sure, absolutely. So shit happens, and we've got machinery to repair this stuff before it accumulates. So, for example, DNA damage repair machinery to get rid yes. of pre-mutagenic lesions before they become mutations. And Longer-lived organisms have a wider arsenal of such machinery. If it's that, if it's agree, so that is what I mean by having fewer gaps or smaller. Yes, gaps. but you, but but you have no evidence that if you can remove these types of of damage, that any that any animal will live longer. So I am starting from the very simple principle, which sounds abstract, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. That the human body, or any organism for that matter, is a machine. And thus, that its function, including its you know, quality of function, its health, shall we say, is defined by its structure, by its molecular and cellular and higher level structure. I'm with you. With you so far. Okay. So, 
damage repair is simply no more and no less than restoring structure to more like what it was at a younger age. Okay, so let's let's take that analogy for people. All right, so let's say that um, there's a very nice car that um, has been um, engineered to live to drive 120,000 miles, and it has ten different um, organ systems or you know uh, you know mechanical systems, and um, you know eight or or nine of them won't live longer than 120,000 miles because they've never been demanded to. So the seats will, let's say, last longer than 120,000 miles, but the tires won't, the paint won't, the transmission won't, the engine block won't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're, you're positing that you have a way to fix the paint, right? So you're gonna come in and you're going to fix the paint. And I'm telling you, there's still, more than half a dozen other or, you know, organ systems in the car that haven't been addressed and the car is still going to fail at the same time. Totally right. You've got to fix them all reasonably well. That's what I said a moment ago. Okay, and I'm telling you that- y You can't make the car work with just paint. <laughs> right, we, we all you know, know I think We all know I think this. Charles, here's I the think problem. the oil change would be a better, would be a better metaphor than the paint. <laughs> no, it I think the oil matter. change would be it better. It doesn't matter because <laughs> Aubrey doesn't have a way to express these enzymes in all of the cells. He's never done it in a worm, never mind in a human. Vadim Gladyshev explained to you that the most effective way of getting rid of damage is in dividing cells because dividing cells will, you know, will dilute away these things. But we have long lived cells like neurons that are not dividing. Right. You, can't, you can't introduce genetic constructs uh, into, let, let into cells. And so you're out there telling people that, um, you know, you came up with the seven, you know, cause of aging 22 years ago. And the only reason why you, you didn't make more progress was money. And now you have all, all this money and you're telling people it's a solved problem now, but you haven't done any of the things that you need to do to turn this into a viable project. Well, first of all, Charles, don't hype your position. I'm not saying anything about what we can do now. I'm saying we have a 50-50 chance of getting to longevity escape velocity 15 years from now. So let's and I'm go. saying you don't. That's right. I know you are. But don't say that I'm saying I've, we've already got there, which is what you just said. Okay. So, um, all right. So since you are focusing for the moment on molecular waste products inside cells, intracellular right. junk, let's focus on that a little more. So the work that we chose to start doing maybe 10 or 15 years ago on that was on the what we regard, what I regard as the two easiest types of such junk. And they were easiest because they were very, they constituted very, very um, high proportion of the relevant intracellular material in the relevant cell types, and because they were molecularly defined in a, in a specific way. So the two cases were, Oxidized cholesterol, specifically seven keto cholesterol in arterial macrophages, which is basically what turns them into foam cells at the beginning of the process of atherosclerosis. And the other one was a family of chemicals called bisretinoids, especially one called A2E, which is a derivative of vitamin A, and it constitutes most of the lysosomal garbage in retinal pigmented epithelial cells. Do you have an animal model in which 
you know, detoxification of these compounds extends lifespan? Of course not. That's what, but the whole point of the classification of the many, many types of... So you have a non-falsifiable hypothesis, Aubrey. No, no, not at all, Charles. Let me finish. The whole point of the classification of the many types of damage that accumulate in the body, the many examples of damage, into this manageable number of categories, these seven categories, is because of the corresponding damage repair modalities that... Uh, Which you just told me you can't test. That are foreseeable, even if they're not there yet. See, a, a lot of what I'm hearing here, Charles, is that you're addressing this technological question as a basic scientist. Not, not as someone who wants to manipulate nature, but as someone who wants to understand nature and is terribly fixated on the fact that we understand nature so little. Technologists don't think that way. They think about how to sidestep their ignorance and use what we already know, even quite well. Absolutely. So how are you going to introduce these constructs into human beings? So let me go on. So the first approach that we had, since it was the eye, was just gene therapy. You can and most gene therapy trials that are currently going on in the clinic these days, of course, are in the eye because it's hardly got an immune system at all. And so it's rather easier to do it. And it's a week under models of accelerated macular degeneration. You may have heard of a disease called Stargardt's disease. There are genetic models of it in mice as well. Um, and we work on that. Took, we, it was slow progress for a good few years, but eventually we spun it out as a startup company, which has taken it quite a long way forward in mice. And I'm told that results are quite promising, but it's still early days. We're still a few years away from clinical trials for sure. The other example of atherosclerosis, actually the way that's looking most promising right now is not to have anything go into the foam cell and break down the 7-ketocholesterol, but rather to have something go in and extract it and cause it to be excreted through the kidney. So there's a... You know that most ideas don't work? Of course I do. But that idea is definitely moving forward quite well now. So the fact that most ideas don't work simply means we have to try a lot of ideas before things do work. That's not exactly something I'm going to dispute. Okay, I, I, I'm going to ask you to defend with evidence the idea that after you um, address one type of damage, that it's going to be easier for you to extend lifespan with another thing. As opposed to harder, because okay. if you're if if people are living to let's say ninety, and now you have a way to get them to live to ninety five, which by the way you don't, but I'll say let's say you do, you, you think that um, getting them the next five years or getting closer to one twenty is going to be easier, mm -hmm. and I say that all evidence says it's going to be harder. Okay. So, okay. go ahead. You, first, you defend that first position. Of all, first of all, you're combining a bunch of different things that I said into one question there, and I think the way you said it may confuse the audience. So I want to pick that apart a bit, a little bit, what you, are, what you just said. One thing you're talking about, and you're coming back to, is what I said about what happens after we reach longevity escape velocity. And remember that I define longevity escape velocity in terms of getting at least 20 or 30 years of additional increase in healthy life for people who are already at least age 60 when we start the therapies. So that's a lot more. Okay, so that. what do you think those therapies are going to be? Don't since since they're 15 years it. away, Don't you've got to have something in, in a trial now. And yeah. how? what are you going to measure? Charles, this is a complicated subject. We're talking to a general audience. 
it's not going to help them if you keep interrupting me before I've got a quarter of the way into an answer. So let me try again. I'm not, uh, what you confuse longevity, the situation after we reach longevity escape velocity with is the multifaceted nature of how we get there, of the near-term stuff we have to do. The, the fact that I've grouped all these many examples of da damage into this manageable number of categories. Now, there's a second thing I've said, which is why I wanted to deconfuse the audience here, which is that once we have a couple of modalities working to get rid of certain examples within a single category, which certainly won't extend lifespan appreciably at all, if, if at all, right? Um, then getting the next one working and the one after that will be progressively easier because we will be able to use largely the same, well, very much the same um, expertise that we gained in getting the first one or two working. So, and you don't consider this fantastical? It's not fantastical at all. Why is stem cell therapy a field? It's a field because all stem, therapy, stem cell therapies and stem cell research have a lot in common, even though different stem cell therapies for different tissues have, have big differences as well. That's all I mean. You know, once you've got, you know, IPS working in fibroblasts, you can get it working in endothelial cells and so on. It's like, it's just the way that biomedical technology always works, just like any other technology. You can reuse the skills that you've developed that were hard the first time around. So that's, those are two very separate things, as I say. So you get rid of, let's say you get rid of some type of oxidized cholesterol in foam cells. You. you still have all this you know, inflammatory processes because you've generated foam cells for the last, you know, 35 years of a 60 year old man or woman's life. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're not dealing with all of the types uh, of damage that are downstream from the initial insults. Right. So your your approaches are so naive and, mm -hmm. and, you know, Charles, I just, can I interject here quickly? Let's just say that I'm the general audience. Uh, I don't understand science. I'm not for longevity. I'm just coming across this podcast and hear you guys discussing this. So my take is that, Charles, as a scientist, you're saying we don't know enough. And once we fix one thing, how are you going to fix the other thing in the biology of your body? Because it's very complicated. It's one of the things I'm saying. Yes. Yeah, right. And what Aubrey's saying is, um, let's take the approach of, as a technologist, we don't necessarily need to know everything to fix it. Is that correct, Aubrey? That is correct. But actually, Charles said something very useful just, to, just before you interject, <laughs> which I want to come on to, which was about what happens if we succeed in removing the oxidized cholesterol. Uh, he's, he's saying, well, hang on, the oxidized cholesterol did a lot of damage. That damage is still there, all the inflammation and all that kind of stuff. But what we need to take into account in evaluating that situation is the fact that we've already got all of this wonderful machinery that already exists in the body for repairing stuff. So in the same way that inflammation exists because it's good for us, because it you know, gets rid of bacteria and so on, even though it does a lot of collateral damage, um, the fact is we have it because we already have machinery for repairing that collateral damage once the infection has gone away. The reason why inflammation is such a huge problem in aging is because it is misapplied by the body to things that are not bacteria and that cannot be got rid of. But when we do get rid of them, remember, you've got the reason why atherosclerotic plugs grow over time is because you've constantly got a steady stream of new macrophages coming in, trying to, well, new monocytes, and then they turn into macrophages, 
um, trying to fix the problem, but becoming part of the problem because they too are unable to process. Okay, Aubrey, you said that you were going to use gene therapy, for example, you know, as some of the... So, so in this case, you don't even need in vivo gene therapy. In this case, you can genetically engineer your HSCs in, in the in cell culture, make your monocytes, inject the monocytes that have already got the genetic wherewithal to break down oxidized cholesterol, for example. Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna take you're gonna do some type of autologous uh, cell therapy, right? So I'm I'm you're an MD, I'm the patient, and you take some of my cells, juice them up in the lab, and then re- reintroduce them. But other things that that's certainly not going to work for um, it, that again, it, we started with intracellular junk, right? Intracellular junk is inside cells, mm-hmm. right? So macrophages. I'm a, I, how, how many cells do I have? 40 trillion or something like that. And um, so, and how many cells does a, a worm have? A thousand, right? So why don't you go into a worm and show me that you can introduce your constructs into all of the worm cells and extend worm lifespan or do something that we can measure in a worm. You see, again, you are focusing so much on extending lifespan. That is the ultimate consequence of doing a lot of things, each one of which is difficult. You know, if you so, take- so you don't have an assay. That's why that that's why this isn't gonna work, Aubrey. Assays. The assays are just not lifespan. So, for example, we have an assay for the removal by the by immune uh, uh, therapy. Of but it's amyloid. only your premise that that is an important cause of aging. Oh, you no. don't have a way to test whether that is an important cause of aging so unless I come back, I you again to the fact that the body is a machine and therefore its function is determined by its structure. Now, it so certainly may very well be that if we fix a hundred or a thousand things in the body and take them back to uh, something like how they were at a more youthful adult age, but there's another thousand that we don't fix that we will have no effect. It may yes, be, it is entirely it, possible. It may, it may be that the thing that we do fix some things that don't matter. So what? Yes. If we fix. So everything. let me just interject for a second. So Aubrey, I'm going to come to your. I don't. I don't. You don't need my help. But so Charles, getting back to the topic. So Aubrey's saying about 15 years before you know we hit the beginning of. LEV, right? So are you saying that it might take 20, 25 or never? He, he, he will never. I don't. Th- well, if you want my my prediction, I would say that um, the, the project as he's defining it will not succeed because his assays are terrible. His um, premises have not really been tested. His approaches are basically not falsifiable. And he, he's, he's, he's got a combination of um, probably insurmountable technical road, roadblocks, like no way to introduce these constructs into all cells, not seriously thinking about how the immune system is going to respond. He's got other causes of aging, like cells are dying. So if he, if he introduces the ability to proliferate into cells, that's a carcinogenic process. He's got, he's got a cause of aging that it basically relates to fidelity of DNA repair, but he, he neither has a way to improve DNA repair, nor has he 
demonstrated in any animal system that improving repair would extend lifespan. So there's multiple problems with what he's proposing. Theoretical problems, logistical problems, technical problems, which is why I characterize it as science fiction. So, so you think that LEV is not gonna happen? No. So, so, okay. so maybe, maybe here's, here's a little tip. Why don't you guys join forces? Why don't you guys join forces? <laughs> Uh, well, I, um, I do what I do. I mean, I, I'm interested. I'm actually very interested in repair, right? So, so if I didn't see among the Aubrey's seven causes of aging a loss of uh, repair capacity, um, which is a fundamental to me, fundamental feature of aging, and probably a fundamental cause of aging. And in fact. Um, a lot of the repair, you know, capacity is driven by the NAD system. So the ability to repair uh, DNA depends upon PARPs and NAD. The ability to detoxify free radical species depends on NADPH. And we found, you know, a dozen different um, conditions of metabolic stress, uh, which is all along the lines of what Aubrey is talking about, that things happen during life. We've found a dozen conditions of metabolic stress that attack the NAD system. So with the, you know, the technology that we developed of basically boosting NAD with nicotinamide riboside, we think that we can restore a lot of resiliency. But I never said that by doing that, you're going to extend people's lifespan beyond their limit. I don't think that you can outkick your coverage. And, 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 and the, the research that has been done on animals indicates that our gene systems, and actually I want to I do a thought experiment if we have time. The, the, the work that has been done on animals indicates that the gene sets that we have are there and have been selected over evolutionary time basically to allow us to reproduce and to function as, as, you know, reproductive creatures. And so, right. And so say again, Aubrey, until we get eaten or until we get eaten. Right. And so, and so, um, and, you know, and because of mutagenesis, it's not great for the species for super old males or super old females to be reproductively, you know, successful because there'd be a lot more mutagenesis. So the young animals generally have the most power and sex appeal and, and all, all of that stuff. And we know that, re, you know, we know that. And the, 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 the uh, auto, you know, analogy is kind of reasonable because you know, Aubrey basically admits that if you address, you know, only a few of the fundamental types of aging and you don't address all of them, you're going to die of a different thing. So, you know, I don't think that there is a practical way for him to succeed. I just do not think so. So I'm actually quite surprised, pleasantly surprised, Charles, that you like the car analogy because a lot of biologists don't. And I use it quite a bit. Um, what I'd like to ask you, Charles, is um, since we obviously have cars driving around right now that are 100 years old and working just as well as when they were built, even though their warranty period was like 10 or 15 years, how long they were designed to work for, 
Why do you feel that the same thing should not be possible in because the living things are much more complicated than cars? Okay, With a car you can agree. you can you can build it from scratch. You can rebuild any component, and yes, I think that we can we could effectively make you know cars immortal if you you know if you if you you might end up with not any molecules from the original car right because you might have had to replace everything but you could keep a car you know going in in that way but you can't do that with with a with a living uh being and so, so i have a, I, I so i have obviously discussed this analogy with biologists many times over the years and there are two things that i point out here that I think are invalid uh, invalidations of the analogy. One of them is the one you just gave, the fact that the human body is so much more complex. Of course it is. That's, to my mind, simply the reason why we haven't got to longevity escape velocity yet, whereas we've got to it with cars rather a long time ago. I will agree with that. Right. But the second one is also very important which is that a huge amount of the complexity that we have and that cars do not is working with us, not against us. In other words, it is this inbuilt anti-aging machinery, the regenerative machinery. The, um, sort of, yep. Yeah. So that means that in a sense, the um, if we were more like cars in the sense of not having such machinery, our job would be harder than it actually okay. is. Okay, true and false. So true is that animals, living things... All, you know, living things. So here's the, the, like the, the, I used to teach undergraduates. So they've just come over the river from, from the other, the other side of, of Iowa city where they took, you know, some, some chemistry and some physics. Right. And so I stand up in front of them and, and I say, biology only has two laws. I mean, you just saw this periodic table in chemistry and you saw, you know, enumerated laws of thermodynamics and then biology just looks like, you know, a menagerie of different examples, everything working in a different way. And I said, there's only two laws in biology. First law, there's no violation of the rules of chemistry or physics. Second law, things are the way they are because they're encoded in DNA and they're subject to selection, right? So if an organism grows at 50 degrees, you know, C, which is hot, um, it, it, it's because all of the, you know, enzymes have to work at that temperature and they came up with a solution through evolutionary time where they can do that. That's why they do that. And they don't violate any physics or chemistry. Right. And then sometimes there's a student in the front of the class that says, but wait a second, Dr. Brenner, it seems like a, you know, a growing child seems like he's violating the second law right? Because second law says that things gain entropy, right? They become disordered over time. And then I explain, no, it's okay, because that's for a closed system. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, the growing child has a sun. There's a sun and there's that cornfield out there. The sun is growing the corn. And then the kid is either eating the corn or is eating the animals that ate the corn. So he has energy entering the system. And as you and I both know, is using a lot of that energy for repair processes. Yeah, to export. So that's fine. That's perfect. The problem is that we do have a gene set that has only demanded that we're able to do things 
to a certain degree for a certain amount of time. Now let's do the thought experiment I wanted to do, okay? Let's go to something way less simple than an animal, way less simple than a worm or a fly or a person. You're gonna make more simple. Okay, so let's make it a bacterium. Okay, let's say it has a thousand genes. Right. How many uh, essential genes you wanna give it? 400, 500, Aubrey? Okay, let's say that it grows, it likes growing at 45 degrees. It can grow maybe up to 48, 49, can't grow at 50. Mm -hmm. So now let's do a thought experiment and let's select for it to grow up to 50 degrees. Okay, how many mutations do you think that it will need? If it could grow at 48 or 49, how many mutations do you think it will need to be able to grow at 50? Not being an expert on, on heat shock proteins and so on, I wouldn't like to say for sure, but I'd be perfectly happy with a large number. A large number. So some people think maybe one because it can grow at 49. Now it, you're just asking it to grow at 50. But if we said there's 400 essential genes, there might be 400 proteins that can't function at 50. Right. 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 So we agree. Right. So similarly, um, you're asking we know there's documentation of people grow, uh, living to 122. Mm -hmm. And there's no documentation of anybody living to 123. Right. And growing and living between 105 and 120 is extremely rare. Mm -hmm. So basically, the gene set has never been demanded mm -hmm. to have a brain that works in the 13th uh, decade, uh, heart that works in the 13th decade, skin that still works in the 13th decade, kidneys that work in the 13th decade, right? So right. there's a lot of things that are going to break down because the gene set doesn't encode the capacity to do that. Right. And not only do you not have a catalog, which you admit, you don't have a catalog of all the types of damages, and you don't have a way to repair those damages, and you don't have a way to introduce the genes to repair those damages. You also don't know how those damages and the organ systems interact with each other such that they would extend lifespan. So the premise that your ability to repair those damages, which you haven't demonstrated that you can do, has not actually even been addressed of whether you would extend lifespan, never mind achieve longevity escape velocity. I don't even accept the premise that your approaches would necessarily extend lifespan. If you can do it in a fly or a worm, I would be impressed. And I would celebrate that. But I don't think that you have a set of approaches that are permitting you to make progress. So I am more on your side than you might think in some of what you just said. Um, I don't know whether, you, I don't think you were a gerontologist, even I wasn't, uh, at the time that Tom Johnson uh, found the age one mutant in C. elegans, a single mutant that added a lot to lifespan. It was so antithetical to uh, dogma in the field back then, which was all built on exactly what you said, that people just pretty much ignored him until five years later when Cynthia Cannon did the same yep. thing. Uh, and then, you know, you couldn't ignore it anymore. Right. Uh, but after then, it seems to me that the field has rather indecently embraced that, uh, simply by essentially trying to pretend that it somehow invalidates the previous dogma, when I don't think it does. No, it doesn't. I think that it simply uh, exemplifies the fact that 
the response to nutrient deprivation in the wild, which is a very widespread response across the whole of the tree of life, um, is something that it has master control genes. You know, it has genes that uh, can be manipulated, whether genetically or, of course, we now know um, pharmacologically. And that's really mm, you know, not so sure about the pharmacologically, but yeah, it's gonna yeah uh, yeah I, I I I might want to argue about rapamycin. Not really sure even there. Uh, the uh, the point is that um, we are simply exploiting something that's already in our genes. We are, uh, we are yeah, but let's let's go a little bit deeper on that because just in the you know in the last you know six to twelve months. I've been thinking a lot about the monogenic longevity gene concept, right? Because it did not come out of Michael Rose's work, which we just talked about, right? Where he took male and females and nearly the end of their lifespan, these are flies. And then he said, I don't want to see you unless you can reproduce at 95% of your expected lifespan. And then in hundreds of generations, he got um, flies that had a longer lifespan, right? right? Because he demanded that they were reproductively... Yeah, completely able, antithetical right? to what... Top, right? top and it's highly polygenic, right? Because right. of the, the same thing like the, 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 the bacterium has to be. You have to address so many different organ systems. You don't expect to get one gene. But then Cynthia Kenyon got, you know, DAF1, right? Okay, she yeah. got, you know, IGF pathway. And we've seen that with the shrimpy mice, right? Ames dwarf mice... Uh, snail mouse, pit mouse, these are, and so uh, monogenic longevity genes exist, but they were not conserved as longevity genes. They were essentially conserved as growth genes. Well, I would say these that are shrimpy, these are shrimpy mice that don't, that would not um, succeed in the wild. They're actually infertile. Right. Yeah, so the, 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 the genes are growth factor genes and that they're conserved for growth. If you attenuate them down, right, then you can get a super small mouse that can live longer, right? But that doesn't invalidate the fact that the gene set was there to promote robustness, fertility, and growth. Right. And so I don't think that it entirely helps out the case that there's going to be longevity medicine. No, you no. and I, it's the same question about rapamycin. Maybe rapamycin will tone down the kind of growth factor signaling anabolic protein synthesis pathway, but all of the evidence indicates that you need to maintain your muscle mass to dispose of glucose as you age. So I'm not volunteering to take rapamycin, although I'm very interested in what the dog, you know, experiments show. But I am actually going to start taking it too. <laughs> I have a question, uh, Aubrey, before we go just quickly. No, I, I um, really deal with this because I think it's important for the audience to understand that I am entirely on Charles's side on this one, that there is no way in God's name that we will be able to make dramatic make large improvements in human lifespan or even double a mouse lifespan by single gene uh, interventions. All we can do is, I, I think actually most of it is around calorie restriction, essentially that, um, you know, when there's, when there's not much food around, it makes sense to hunker down rather than reproduce. So, you know, most of the phenomena, phenomena that we see in across species in calorie restriction experiments can essentially can be explained by that. And again, it's just, it's an, it's an adaptation to environmental variation that exists, it is already in our genome, and that we are to some extent in a segmental way 
emulating uh, by these genetic means. So I completely agree with you. And in fact, back in the early 2000s, I started getting rather pissed off with, with some of the more senior gerontologists who were saying, oh, calorie restriction is the way to go. You know, we're going to get 140-year-old people because we've been able to add 40% to mice. And I said, this is nonsense. The evolutionary um, explanation for all of this makes perfectly clear that we would see at most a very much more attenuated response in longer-lived species to calorie restriction. Than and the nuance... The nuance I think we can we can let the the, the, the readers uh, or the watchers know is that overnutrition, mm-hmm. like ad libitum feeding, is actually fattening, yeah. right, and is shortening the lifespan of a lot of the control animals. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's demonstrable that you know obesity and type two diabetes will shorten lifespan. And, you know, leanness and activity is great. But from my point of view, leanness and activity gets you closer to your maximally encoded lifespan. And it, there's, I don't yeah, see the yeah, evidence 100%, 100% that you can outkick your genetic coverage. Because your genetic let's coverage... Your let's go back to your bacterial example for a moment. Yep. Because, wait, wait, wait. Um, before that, Aubrey, I'm glad that both of you agree on something there. Come on, we're having fun there. here. Just two seconds, because it goes back to something you said about the two laws of biology. And going back to what you said, and it goes on with the yeah. same uh, um, t- trail of thought. Would uh, LEV uh, violate the two laws of biology? Certainly not. As Charles was very correctly saying, the second law of thermodynamics is not in any way challenged by life. Um, you know, we can talk about it in terms of not only young children growing, but indeed any organism from one day to the next has to export a humongous amount of entropy just in order to stay alive. Um, and as long you know, as it stays alive, it can take in energy that's right. and it can repair itself. Right. But in the end, in the end, entropy always wins. Not entropy exactly, but parts of entropy. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, so you have to export a hell of a lot of entropy in order to stay alive, even from one day to the next, whatever age you are. And this, support, this of course, applies also prenatally, that the reason babies are born young is because the mother uses energy to partition entropy uh, so that the baby doesn't get as much as she's got, basically. Let's not get too technical here, but we're, we're, we're agreeing that uh, biology doesn't violate chemistry and physics. And we're by evolution. Right. And we're agreeing that things are the way they are because they're genetically encoded. And I'm saying, and I, but I am saying, and, and you're not, that maximal lifespan is genetically encoded. Now, I'll agree with you that in, that in a theoretical sense, if you could repair all the kinds of damages, you would live uh, longer. And I'm basically telling you that you can't. Okay, so that's good. So that doesn't violate your laws. You are acknowledging that theoretically, if we could repair damage comprehensively enough, then the concept that I've been putting forward for the past. Yeah, and I'd still take the same side of the bet. Right, but that would ne- that would not say that it could never be done. It just says that it won't be done in the foreseeable future. It says that I would I would bet an inordinate amount of money I on it, and also I don't think that your approaches are sound because the problem is that you're, you're not, I think that you're too committed to the SENS approaches to really have um, set up a falsifiable test early on. And, and the fact that you haven't 
really concerns me. I mean, I've, okay, I spent the last, you know, that's a, that's a 13 years or something as a department head. Mm -hmm. And so I review a lot of people's research programs. Mm -hmm. And when people are too in love with their approach to really try to falsify it, it concerns me. Sure. And that's the problem where, you, you know, you could you know, the, the original idea was we're going to achieve it by 2030. And now we're, you know, which is only seven and a half years away. And now it's 15 years away. And you're telling me that even if you could succeed in one of the type of, of cleanup approaches that wouldn't extend lifespan. So you don't have a falsifiable, you know, okay, problem. So and I, I don't see how anybody could invest in this. You, you've been accusing me of running away from falsifiability for quite a while, and you haven't given me a chance to respond. So I'd love it. Right. So falsifiability is a concept that basic scientists who are trained and inclined to understand nature often um, you know, challenge technologists with people who are about manipulating nature. And that's because they're doing it wrongly. So what was the Wright brothers hypothesis? How did that, what was, what were they doing that was falsifiable in let's say 1900? They were uh, testing the hypothesis that uh, they could uh, apply counter forces to the force of gravity. They weren't denying gravity, mm -hmm. right? But they were they were testing the hypothesis that if they could build a machine that would blow air in a particular way with a particular type of wing, that they could achieve lift. So it was in fact a falsifiable hypothesis. That's exactly, but it wasn't a falsifiable hypothesis involving an entire airplane getting off the ground. So in the similar way, if I have a hypothesis, if I'm, let's say, Dale Shank in 1998, he was the person who invented the idea of immunotherapy against amyloid. Um, and I, my hypothesis is amyloid is bad for, is, a, is causative in Alzheimer's, right? But I have another hypothesis that the immune system can get rid of amyloid. Okay, so then I develop an immune model and I get rid of the amyloid in the mice. And uh, the mice are actually better. That... Uh, yeah, that, that, that was in, a, of course, a mouse model of Alzheimer's, and even by the standards of mouse models, mouse models of Alzheimer's are pretty hopeless. But the fact is, it was very promising, and that's why they rushed yeah, too fast to clinical trials. Uh, but we got there in the end, of course. Now there are four uh, immunotherapies that, by very direct assays, PET scans, show that you can remove amyloid from the brains of Alzheimer's patients. Now, the patients don't get appreciably better, or maybe only a small subset of them get a little bit better, um, which is no surprise to me at all, because Alzheimer's is aging in microcosm. It's very multifaceted. Um, you're definitely going to have to get rid of the tangles as well, for example. And that's just one example. Uh, but the point is, they did have falsifiable hypotheses. They did have ways to assay. What's your, you promised me that you would... Show yeah. me your falsifiable hypothesis. So now, for example, we're just starting a project to get rid of tau using a new technique that allows antibodies to get into cells in a manner that isn't endosomal, but actually cytosolic. And um, there are ways to now image tau. Same as you can tell me if you for some time has been able to do with amyloid, you can now image tau directly using PET scanning. So the hypothesis will be that the signal goes down as a result of our therapy. Right? You know, it's that kind of thing. But what in terms of your seven causes of aging is being tested in a way that you would 
decide that it's not a good idea anymore any longer or you just committed to it because you wrote it down in 2000 not at all the only way in which the only, the only thing that i am committed to is i observe that people are not coming up with examples of aging damage that do not fit into the seven categories no that that's I saw you say that in, in the debate with Vadim as well. And I think that's, I, I, I think it's, it's really not very clever rhetoric, frankly, Aubrey, to say that, you know, you wrote down the seven causes and you're there for, you know, 22 years saying that it, it's like, for example, I, I just named you one. I said the decline in repair capacity okay, is as fundamental a type of, of aging yeah, as any of the seven things that you stated. Okay, so you're, let's, you're, let's exactly that. Because oh, no, but I don't need that because I have something else. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you'll, you'll also say that no one is coming up with any other types of, of aging. So I think but, that your position but, but, so is untenable. Of course people I've have heard come, it already. Of course people have come up with potential examples of things that don't fit into the classification that I think are wrong, and I say why they're wrong in detail. So and when you say they're wrong, then you say that no one has come up with any anything that supplants them, some, and you're deciding what's that, wrong. So anyone can come up with something that's I, wrong. I just want to clarify something for the audience, because we're talking about these seven um, causes of aging that Aubrey declared, and people yes. are used to have heard a lot about the hallmarks of aging. So I want us to clarify that for people in terms of there. Some of them are the same, but they're not necessarily. Um, I mean, there's not. Yeah, not equivalent. Sure. You not equivalent. Them, if, yeah. If you, you so know, we're going to do that. We're going to compare them. But I just wanted to clarify that because people might confuse them because they've been hearing over and over about it again. But also, so don't forget at the end. The at the end we want to. We, we want to make yeah. sure that everybody still understands that uh, Aubrey's saying we're about fifteen, you know, plus or minus a couple of years, and Charles is saying. Either it's greater than 15 or we're never going to get to LAB, well, so right? Let me make sure that we don't forget this because this is very important. I've said it since the very beginning. It's not a matter of plus or minus a couple of years. I think we have a 50-50 chance of getting there within 15 years or so. But I still think, same as 20 years ago, that we've got at least a 10% chance of not getting there for 100 years if we do hit some of the things that Charles is so certain that we will hit. Yeah, so um, I, I would, Aubrey's saying 10% on that. And I'm saying 99% plus on that, on that possibility. I think another one that's interesting is uh, because we're both interested in metabolism is, you know, Aubrey, you know, pointed out that there could be, you know, mitochondrial mutations, right? And so he feels like he's made progress because he can express mitochondrial proteins from, you know, the nucleus, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that you can do. So, so let's, let's say, let's say I accept the premise that um, mitochondrial and we rule two, right, of biology, everything is encoded. And, you know, mitochondria are incredibly important in energy generation, as well as biosynthetic reactions, detoxification. So mitochondrial damage is bad. Mitochondrial, you know, um, mutations are bad. And, and, and Aubrey can, can now, you know, um, in, in, in model systems, he can express mitochondrial genes from the nucleus. Okay, good, good. Okay, right. now here's a question for you. Um, so the, you have an old person, person is 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. 
they have uh, declining mitochondrial function. And you know, now you have a way to express some mitochondrial genes from the nucleus. Mm -hmm. But guess what? The person's got 40 trillion cells. You don't know which cells have you know, declining mitochondria. By the way, declining mitochondria lead to apoptosis. So you're, leading, you're getting loss of cells. You're getting inflammatory reactions. Mitochondria are circulating around the body, kicking off innate immune response. You have a mess. So how does even the expression of uh, mitochondrial genes from the nucleus help you at all? So you said a couple of things now that didn't add up. First of all, you were talking about apoptosis. If a cell dies, then we don't want to express mitochondria from it. It's gone. We want to replace the cell with cell division or stem cell therapy. Okay. So it's not part of the therapy at all. So okay. Then similarly, you just talked about mitochondria circulating and causing the innate immune system to get unhappy. What's that got to do with it? We're not going to put whole uh, engineered mitochondria into the bloodstream naked. Okay, so 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 you you said that you know one of the great things about the the seven causes of aging, as opposed to nine hallmarks or whatever, is that they're very actionable, right? Right. So right. the action from the problem of mitochondrial mutations is you're going to express things in the nuclei. And right. I just told you, you know. I don't see how that addresses a problem. And you're telling me, no, it doesn't address the problem. There are some aspects of the problem that you brought up that it doesn't need to address because they are addressed in other ways. Like what problem said, does it address then? It mainly it addresses the inflammatory, well, not inflammatory, but oxidative nature of, our, of muscle cells that have become mutant. So this is work that's gone back to, to the 1980s. I got, it was the first part of aging that I got interested in, in the 90s. And essentially what, is, what was shown is that when, when mitochondria mutate, they enjoy a selective advantage. They actually are, are selected for in the mitochondrial turnover process that continues um, at a continuous rate even in post-mitotic cells. And so you get entire cells or entire segments of muscle fibers being taken over by copies of the same mutant. This is a very well-established fact. And but, so do you have a, an animal in which you can repair in some manner by knowing this information? Of course not. The idea is to develop that, to put mitochondrial genes in the nucleus in a manner such that they work. In other words, the protein is imported into the mitochondria and assembled into the respiratory chain complexes and so on. But we're only a part of the way there so far. So of course we don't have an But in declining muscle, you get um, infiltration of, you know, inflammatory cells, immune cells, and you don't even have, you know, the types of cells that are going to be capable of functioning as myocytes. Actually, even that's not true because satellite cells have been introduced into muscle successfully in, in model organisms, in mice. But, okay, I, I, I just, I think that you have to admit you've got a long way to go oh, before yeah. that, you know, particular tenet becomes actionable. There I don't consider it, you know, actionable. And I also <laughs> still don't understand why you don't consider the uh, decline of repair capacity to be oh, okay. a fundamental so, yeah, feature yeah, of cause of aging. Let, you haven't let me answer that question yet, so I will. The key, key thing here is that the repair capacity is genetically encoded. The only reason it goes downhill is because it has more damage, no, slowing it down. 
the that's not true because oh, when okay. when nad comes under attack so for example with sun damage i mean i'm just going to educate you here because you just said something that's just demonstrably not true so when there's dna damage parp gets activated parp can chew up a lot of the nad you know in the repair process and the ability of those cells to deal with other types of damage like ross something is in decline it's addressable in fact it's an actionable thing so it you know from your definition that it should be fundamental, it should be actionable. It is fundamental. It's not explained by any of the other seven tenets. It is actionable. So I'm looking forward to publishing a revised version of your seven types of aging because 22 years after you proposed it, somebody came up to you and said, gee, it's not true. Or maybe you still think that your, your, your seven causes are complete. So you're, sure, you're not gonna be able to say that no one has told you that they're not complete. I'm not gonna let you do that. Let me try again. You can tell me all you like that's not not correct, but there's no point in telling me that you are correct when I can perfectly well explain why you're not. Okay. PARP, for example. PARP is a great example that you just brought up involved in DNA repair. It consumes a lot of NAD in the process. When the repair is complete, what happens? Depends. I mean, uh, it could it could repair and generate mutations it could repair and now what happens to the nad that was consumed uh also depends it depends what what biosynthetic genes are active in in that cell depends whether the uh person is supplementing with an nad precursor depends upon whether the de novo pathway is on but um what does it not depend on as you said you've got a de novo pathway right? There are systems in the body that attempt to maintain NAD homeostasis. The the deviation from homeostasis, the depletion of NAD, correct me if I'm wrong, is something that is caused by stresses that um, cause consumption of NAD, like PARP, but those stresses, when relieved, allow homeostasis of NAD. Not entirely, because there's pyroptosis, there's different types of, you know, cell death processes that can get, you know, uh, launched by a, a lack of NED. I mean, in heart failure, we have a model of heart failure in which NED comes under attack and nicotinamide riboside kinase gets induced. And if you provide NR, then you can, you know, maintain reasonable heart function for a while. If you don't, then, you know, you end up with heart failure. Sure. So absolutely. When any kind of stress, including NAD depletion, I'm quite sure, goes too far, damage can be done that is more severe and takes more. So tell me why this is not a fundamental cause of aging. There's, you know, there's thousands of, of, of articles talking about okay. Uh, okay. age so, and metabolic stresses attacking perhaps, the NAD system. I'm telling about... you how important it is for repair. Yeah, perhaps you're you interested in repair. Perhaps you said something there that helps me to answer your question. You use the phrase cause of aging just then, as opposed to category of damage. That's a very important distinction. Mechanisms that cause aging, that drive aging, certainly include many other things that are not among the categories of damage. Free radicals, you know, the breathing causes aging, no question, right? But the 
types of damage are the consequence of those processes that create damage. And the whole point of sense is to repair the damage after it's been created, irrespective of what process created it. Well, I think it goes in the same bucket then, because you also need NADPH to make you know, lipids and steroids and, and we've got a cell membrane. Pathway. And we've got a de novo pathway, just like you said. Not Question it. for you, Charles. Okay. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, personally, science aside, do you want LEV? Do you, do you want it? <laughs> I knew he'd try and get this in. <laughs> It's a, it's a counterfactual question, right? Yeah. So so I don't really find it interesting. I want to live a long, productive, and healthy life. Um, I don't believe in you know the Easter Bunny, and um, I don't invest in um, scientific projects that uh, don't have defined aims and falsifiable premises. And so uh, I'm not rooting for it or against it. I think it's an unreasonable proposition that's poorly defined as a project and has virtually no chance of succeeding. Of course, the good news is that the project is not that we work on. The things that we choose to work on from month to month, from year to year, are not defined by our expectation of how soon we'll get to longevity escape velocity. They just seem to be good things anyway, in terms of repairing different types of damage that may alleviate... Then why don't you determine whether repairing, you know, one of those types of damages will improve fitness. Definitely like, for example, I, 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 as I said before, you know, you don't have a way, I'm not sure if I did say this before, one of the, one of the seven causes of aging has to do with the fidelity of DNA replication. But you have, A, no way to improve the fidelity of DNA replication, on, nor do know. you have a way to uh, demonstrate, nor have you ever demonstrated that if you could, that you would improve fitness or, you know, lifespan. I agree. And in fact, I don't talk about DNA damage repair fidelity at all. Uh, a lot of other people do, but I don't. I, I've said for well over 15 years that the, and again, based on evolutionary thinking, which we've, you know, I've established, we agree is a good idea, that mm -hmm. it's highly likely that the only thing that matters in terms of DNA damage in a anywhere near a currently normal lifetime is cancer, simply because cancer can kill us just from one cell getting the wrong constellation of mutants. Right. So, so I think it's your number two cause of aging is cancer, yeah. nuclear DNA mutations. Right. right. But specifically around cancer, I always say only cancer matters. Okay. So, what's actionable about that? So, yeah. So, this is actually an interesting one because originally the approach that I proposed for eliminating cancer much more comprehensively than anyone had ever been able to do or is able to do even now, was an extremely elaborate and ambitious one, far more elaborate and ambitious than any of the other things I want to do. And there were certainly people who basically said, yeah, all of the rest of sense is actually not too crazy, but this is absolutely crazy. And, you know, I, uh, it was really hard. But it's not really clear that that's true anymore. We now have a drug that uh, wasn't developed by us. It was developed by a very distinguished group in Dallas, Jerry Shea's group. Um, that uh, basically kills cells that express high levels of telomerase, just kills them quickly, not by telomere shortening, but by telomere disruption. And it's got a very good dose response because 
non-cancer cells, even stem cells in the blood, for example, express such trace levels of telomerase that it doesn't mess them up. Um, and it's going, it's going into the clinic quite soon, this drug. So, you know, this is the kind of thing, this is, what, this is kind of a second generation version of the thing that I proposed 20 years ago. These are the kinds of things that one has to be ready for. In well, look, then you didn't revise your cause of aging because the no, cause no. of aging that I read says, you know, nuclear DNA mutation. So now it's, now it's not actionable. Now you're not actually trying to go repair. Back, go back 20 DNA years, mutations. you'll see that I was already saying only cancer matters. I don't see that. <laughs> I mean, I don't see that uh, targeting telomerase um, is going to really help as an anti-aging strategy, right? It's a, as an anti-cancer strategy. All right. So it looks like uh, we're coming to uh, almost an end here. So we don't know what, so for the audience, we've got Dr. Charles Brenner's side, we've got Dr. Aubrey de Grey's side. It's up to you to decide whose side you're on. Are we getting closer to LEV or are we not? Or we're never going to get there. That's up to the audience. Uh, you decide. And um, I have a quick okay. question, and maybe we'll add it or not to the podcast. But um, I heard an analogy. Uh, I heard an analogy recently when I was looking to um, uh, cryonics, actually, that um, I don't know if you. I'm sure Aubrey, you know him. Um, he said the Foresight Institute, um, oh my God, his name escapes me right now. He's doing the, he's the director of research there and he's working on the longevity tree. He's mentioned to me, I can't remember his name right now, but let's just say that he said that he thinks for cryonics, the same he, that the Egyptians were doing, which is remember they were embalming their bodies, putting them with all their belongings, their wives, uh, putting them in there because of the, you know, they, they believe in the immortality and the passage um, to death and potentially coming back. And the whole idea is that their wealth will be there, their stuff will be there, and we would figure out how to bring them back sort of situation. So uh, my analogy and the question in longevity escape velocity or anything longevity related is um, back in the 1500, they thought they were the future or modern era, right? And Galileo was uh, this person that was coming up with these theories that nobody believed in. Um, this is very different because that's physics and biology is much more complicated, it seems. But is it possible that longevity escape velocity is possible because we still don't know so much and we will figure out so much? Or if we think of it how we're like, it seems that we're in the modern times, we're not. Uh, I mean, is there an ana the analogy to be made that it could ha happen, but it also couldn't happen? could not happen like the Egyptians? The, the, the best, the best um, analogy that I like here is the analogy of powered flight, which goes both ways. So everyone often mentions that, you know, top physicists were saying that powered flight was theoretically impossible right up until it was done. But it's also very important to remember that Leonardo da Vinci had come up with pretty plausible looking designs for fl powered flight 400 mm. years earlier, and he probably didn't think they were going to take 400 years to come to fruition. So when it comes to fundamental breakthroughs, it is very difficult to come up with even remotely educated guesses for how long it's going to take. Luckily, after you've made the fundamental breakthrough, if we look across the whole history of technology, including medicine, we see rather the opposite. We see that after the fundamental breakthrough has happened, the incremental refinements of that breakthrough that improve function and, and, and performance uh, tend to be rather rapid and rather um, smooth, rather predictable in time frame. Um, 
just so long as public you know, uh, enthusiasm is there to exploit the stuff. My problem is that the way that the SENS uh, approaches have been undertaken doesn't still doesn't allow one to evaluate the fundamental premise that if these repair processes could be improved by exogenous treatments, whether they're genetically encoded or autologous stem cell or whatever, that you would allow someone to radically extend their lifespan and essentially outrun their gene set. Okay, so and, you know, the way that I've answered this since forever is as follows that absolutely, we do not know for certain that there is no eighth category of thing that needs a different way. I've already that. named one for you. As I told you, you didn't. Because <laughs> you mentioned yourself that we already have a pathway, a de novo synthesis pathway for NAD that is there to provide homeostasis. But the, No, I didn't say that it always works. No, of course you didn't say it always works, and nor did I. But the point is, because it exists, it gives us a zone within which there's only one. Th there's only other stuff that we need to do, and if we're outside that zone, we need to do more serious stuff. Yeah, stem cell therapy, whatever. But the point is, it's not part of the classification because of the type of thing it is. It's a cause of aging. It's not. A and so you don't see the problem with Aubrey de Grey wrote the seven uh, cause classification. Aubrey de Grey is the judge and jury of what is in the seven okay. cause classification. All other causes that are proposed will be rejected by Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey de Grey decides that it doesn't have to be falsified. And again, that that's completely unfair, Charles. You, uh, you we've talked about falsification already. I've explained to you that everything we do is every bit as falsifiable as everything you do. And I've told you why, I told you the details of why we falsify, how we falsify this or that thing. We use you haven't you know, falsified things that you know. You've never even tested whether any of the seven causes of aging, if addressed, would improve fitness in any animal. That's right. If, I remember having to write something sarcastic in about 2005 when people started saying this. You don't I, have to be sarcastic. I'm no, just no, being honest I, with you I'm about just, a critique of your myself. program. I'm just remembering what I said. I said that I don't recall Henry Ford uh, at my, you know, telling his potential customers that if you lay the parts of a car out on the road and you pour burning petrol over them, they stay obstinately stationary. Uh, nor did I recall his being castigated for not saying so. You know, that's basically what you're saying. That no, it's not. ought to be, but it's not what falsifiability ought to be in technology, only in science. So should we go to statements by each one of you in terms of, um, are we any closer to LEV? Uh, Aubrey, do you still stand by the 50% chance in 15 years? And uh, Charles, I'm sure your stance, you have your stance, but if you could explain it for us uh, to conclude this, First episode, that would be amazing. So you want me to go first? Um, we'll let Charles go. Oh, go ahead. Yes, go ahead, Aubrey. Yeah, so, of course, I um, have been very much enjoyed this debate um, and uh, Charles's points, and I am not surprised by how poorly he understands what damage repair in sense actually is and what it isn't. But that's no problem, because it's not just me saying all of this. I whole scientific community now exists around this, uh, exemplified by 
for example, the fact that the word rejuvenation is actually respectable now. It doesn't just mean cosmetics the way it did 20 years ago. But whole conferences and companies are uh, using it as in part of their names. So that's, you know, helpful. And it certainly means that Charles has plenty of other people to suggest additional categories of damage to and see what they say. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's very important to keep our eyes on this. As I mentioned a moment ago, the... Um, you know, seven categories look pretty solid right now just because they seem, I seem to be um, not, not hearing any good suggestions about the ones, but they are by no means sacrosanct. And uh, the only thing I would say is that since it seems to have been so hard to identify any others, if there are any others, then perhaps the easiest way to identify them is to fix the ones we do know about and thereby unmask the ones we don't. Excellent. Well, I, I appreciated meeting Aubrey de Grey. I appreciated uh, debating Aubrey de Grey. Um, I don't think Aubrey de Grey has a comprehensive list of causes of aging. Um, he's demonstrated that they're not actionable, that he doesn't have an advanced technology to achieve any of them. He doesn't have a, an ability to evaluate whether they're even useful. And so I'm um, not optimistic about the prospects for LEV, but I did enjoy this debate. And we did agree it, on some things like damage is really important in aging. It was great Fantastic. to see you that both of you agreed on, uh, on this one subject. And um, it was also an honor to have you both here and that both of you actually got to meet on this occasion. Mm -hmm. be on this inaugural episode, yeah. Yeah, it'll be great uh, to continue this actually with a live audience. So we should um, set that up actually after this uh, recording. And um, thank you so much for this time with us. All right. Have a great okay. evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Bye bye. This episode is brought to you by the Metusola Foundation, a nonprofit medical charity focused on extending the healthy human lifespan by making 90 the new 50 by 2030. Please like, share, and comment to support our work. You can find us at letstalklongevity.com and subscribe to get exclusive access to content.